Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Three Roll Estate Craft Rum Distillery, crafting premium rum from their own Louisiana sugarcane. Three Roll is cane to glass. From Nola Pizza in the Nola Brewing Tap Room on Chapatula Street in New Orleans, we're out to lunch with Peter Rashidi, Tulane University's A.B. Freeman School of Business professor and director of the award-winning Birkenrode Reports. It's business, New Orleans style. Hi, I'm Peter Rashidi. Welcome to Out to Lunch. Whatever you believe is the cause of changing climate, we seem to be living through an era of historically more storms and more severe storms. Even if you only moved here recently, most of us in Louisiana have now lived through a major hurricane or had one narrowly miss us. You're no doubt all too familiar with the hurricane season ahead of the storm heading in our direction. It starts out with five days lead time, then casually checking the weather forecast, and, and it builds to obsessively watching storm predictions on TV, checking incessantly online, and asking family, friends, and neighbors, are you staying or evacuating? So here's a crazy question. What if you didn't have to do any of that? What if there was a website or an app that you could open, punch in your address, and get an individualized, accurate wind and flood forecast? Not for the city, but for your own specific address. If that sounds ridiculous and impossible, well, it's neither. It's actually real. It's a tool that's at your fingertips right now. It's called QRISC. It's the result of years of development by a company headquartered at the Stennis Space Center called QRISC Analytics. Initially, QRISC customers have been municipalities, but starting with the 2022 hurricane season, QRISC is available to the general public. Elizabeth Valenti is the lead engineer who created, designed, and along with her team of seven, built this piece of technology. Elizabeth, welcome to Out to Lunch. Hi, Peter, how are you today? Thank you so much for having me. Great, we're glad to have you. There's a good side and bad side to everything, even high winds. Almost everybody in the energy production business believes that wind power is gonna provide a significant amount of our future electricity supply. Here in Louisiana, we don't exactly have winds whistling across the wide open plains, but we do have wind out at sea in the Gulf. Harnessing that offshore wind to generate electricity is now a priority for both our state and federal governments. As plans progress to build wind farms out in the Gulf, one of the essential items is the giant windmill blades that spin around to produce the energy. Each wind turbine blade is 400 feet long and made of aerodynamically sculpted carbon fiber. Wind turbine blades are reportedly the largest serially produced item manufactured on Earth and the exact spot on the planet where some of the most advanced blades are being designed is a plant in the Avondale shipyards just out of New Orleans. The manufacturer is a company called Gulf Wind Technology. Its CEO is James Martin. James, welcome out to lunch. Thank you very much, Peter. Great to be here. Elizabeth, I'm not sure how many people on Earth are potentially affected each year by hurricanes and floods, but I think it would be a fair estimate that if they all downloaded your personalized storm prediction tool, QRISC, you'd have one of the most popular weather websites in the world. Personalized hurricane prediction is something most of us have never considered is possible. And yet, we know from bitter experience that being just 10 or 15 miles to the east or west of a hurricane's landfall can make a huge difference. If QRISC is really able to deliver this kind of specific information to everyone, 
there are two obvious questions. One, can you supply reliable information far enough ahead of a hurricane's landfall to give people time to decide whether to stay or to evacuate? And two, if Q-Risk really works, why wouldn't the National Weather Service buy your company right now, today? Well, Peter, those are very good questions, so let me uh, answer the first one. Um, you are exactly right that just a few miles difference can um, make a big difference in what people experience. Uh, this, this started way back, the idea started way back in 2005 during Hurricane Katrina when my predecessor company was doing research for the government at the Stennis Space Center. And uh, after Hurricane Katrina passed, we had a lot of friends and family that were having trouble settling with their insurance companies because their houses were completely destroyed. And the private insurance companies didn't want to pay because they couldn't determine if it was wind versus water. And the government flood insurance didn't want to pay because same thing. So what we did was provide time series information for each property to let people know what came first, the wind or the water. Now the interesting part about that is whether or not your house is to the east or the west of the hurricane eye wall depends on whether or not you get the wind or the water first. So every property is personalized. Um, to our knowledge, uh, all the friends and family during Katrina, it turned out to be about 15 people, uh, were able to settle with the insurance companies and with the flood insurance companies the minute they showed them this scientific information. Well, so, what if you were in the billboard business or the, uh, or the personal injury attorney uh, business? You're, you're going to wipe them out. That's all I see. <laughs> well, is, uh, no. So um, actually, uh, after Katrina and, and storms, uh, since Katrina, we've had lots of attorneys call us and ask us for information. And uh, we send our PhD, Dr. Fitzpatrick, uh, who studied under Dr. Gray at Colorado State University, or other, uh, one of our other senior meteorologists, to actually show the information and go ahead and testify in court uh, to, to settle these claims. So we are of help to the attorneys and uh, people in litigation as well. So they're not aiming at you? No, no. No, that's good. They, <laughs> James, if I were looking for the definition of optimism, I'd say it was manufacturing the biggest industrial items on planet Earth on the basis of a future wind farm promised by the term-limited Democratic governor of a very Republican state whose economy is dominated by the oil and gas industry. <laughs> Either you have the world's greatest investors or more likely you have other markets for your wind turbine blades outside the state of Louisiana. But let's start closest to home. What is the current state of wind farm technology here in our state? Okay, well, I'll start by leading us in a bit. So in, the, in North America, there's about 70,000 turbines operational today, and that's just onshore. So you've got a fantastic market for turbines, energy companies uh, that actually, uh, oil and gas companies now diversifying into becoming more energy companies are actually owning these assets. So you've got a fantastic base of onshore. You've got some amazing targets for offshore. You brought up a very good point. So offshore wind is new to the US. There's only a few, less than a dozen turbines actually operational today offshore, and that's gonna change significantly. So over the next decade, there's gonna be turbines installed on the East Coast, on the West Coast, and then the Gulf Coast. 
Now, there's a particular challenge for every sort of technology, and this is, uh, and very relevant to what we've just been talking about, is that a technology has to be right for the wind conditions. So, you know, that you don't just put a turbine anywhere. Um, particular challenges in the Gulf is that you've got these hurricanes coming through. Um, the only way that they're going to be installed there is if we solve some of the technology challenges, some of the grid challenges, and, you know, some of the execution challenges in terms of getting them there. So they can independently drive uh, and be installed, um, because not down to governmental leadership. Um, they're standing on their own two feet as an energy source now. In fact, some turbines today have actually got cheaper energy creation than some traditional uh, oil and gas uh, fossil fuel generation. And the, uh, you know, we had a recent uh, federal land uh, lease out for the Gulf of Mexico, and the shallow water properties got a lot more attention than people thought, and a lot of people think it's these oil and gas companies kind of setting themselves up for future wind farms, and they want that property. You think that's viable? Yeah, I think it's absolutely viable. I think the, the oil and gas companies are really interested in, in energy-producing assets, such as wind farms. And I think the Gulf of Mexico is a fantastic body of water to get to, to get turbines in. Um, it's not easy. You know, you've got troubles with sediment. You've got troubles with wind. You've got troubles with infrastructure deployment. But it's all solvable. Uh, the oil and gas industry has put, deployed, I think, over 7,000 drilling assets in the Gulf in the lifetime. I think there's about 3,000 assets still at operation today. So what we do know in Louisiana is how to install infrastructure, how to service infrastructure. We've got the workforce that knows how to be deployed and install and look after these assets. A wind turbine is just another energy producing asset. So it's a really good thing for, to Louisiana, for the workforce of Louisiana, for the companies who invested in oil and gas and have expertise in oil and gas to diversify and strengthen their portfolio into wind. So far, the greatest news is that the oil and gas companies don't want to beat you up because uh, they own some of these these ideas, and you're Absolutely. not going to be killed by attorneys. This is so great. <laughs> yeah. These were my Absolutely. greatest fears going in. And uh, the, yeah, now let's talk. Um, let's about about the pre and post hurricane businesses because you seem to be in both. I earlier you explained the the post hurricane uh, work, which totally make makes sense. The pre hurricane, what's going to go on there? And and are you afraid of lawsuits if you're off or off by the spot? Um, no, so that's an interesting question. Uh, in the hurricane business, or the weather business in general, it is assumed that uh, there is inherent uncertainty. So, you know, anytime you watch the weather on television or, or, or read it, you understand that it is an estimate, a best estimate. So it's the same thing with uh, the hurricane forecasting. So we... Uh, we start our forecasting as soon as we can. We, we like to do it five days before landfall, but as, as you all know, sometimes the storms don't even form until three days like before landfall, yeah. right? So, so we do it as quickly as possible. Um, an interesting fact is that hurricane storm surge is up to 90% wind driven. So the wind information is critical to us getting a correct storm surge forecast. So we use all of the buoy information by the National Data Buoy Center and any on-land wind information that we can find, but uh, we, we found that there was uh, a hole, so to speak, in accurate wind forecasting. So about three years ago, our PhD and, and our team uh, developed a model that we called QWINDS that 
does an accurate estimate of 600,000 data points estimating the wind speeds in all four quadrants of the hurricane so that we can then get an accurate wind estimate and then turn that into an accurate storm surge estimate as well. So more observations in the Gulf would be of great importance to our storm surge forecasting. Oh, it's hugely important. I mean, actually, for the work that we're doing at Gulf Wind Technology, one of the th projects we're going to be driving is the first turbine in the Gulf of Mexico as a technology pilot. And actually, specifically, this is technologies going into turbines, almost putting a nervous system in the yeah. rotor. And, you know, accurate prediction of what the peak wind events are going to be, that affects how you design the rotor. That affects how you kind of de-risk the asset. So uh, you've got to have the data set to build the turbine, you know, how much energy is going to be in those gusts in a hurricane force wind. Um, you want to certify that actually whatever you put in the Gulf can actually withstand it. You've tested it, you know, you've torture tested the structures. You know, you want to basically, you've got the challenge of having to have a big sail and a small sail at the same time in the Gulf basically. So for 99% of the time when it's light wind, you need a nice big sail. Okay, you've got to get your capacity factor, you've got to make your money from your turbines. And then once in a blue moon, or maybe a little bit more regular than we like, uh, a hurricane comes through, you've got to deploy your small sail and get this thing through the hurricane. So the technology that we're trying to work with is really working with aerodynamics so you know so actually bend off you twist off the load and making sure that these giant structures and they can be as high as the empire state building wow. actually withstand they've got to be there for 40 years they've got to withstand maybe one two hurricanes a year and it all comes down to data data for designing data for understanding how much fatigue or torture it's gone through an event and how you look after your expensive asset, essentially. So, yeah, really, really um, complementary approach, I think, we're taking. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Peter Raschuti. I'm talking with James Martin from Gulf Wind Technology, where they're making gigantic blades for wind turbines, and Elizabeth Valenti from QRISC, the online tool that, among other things, predicts the exact path of a hurricane. And, Elizabeth, you're going to eliminate my favorite weather... Uh, saying, which is cone of uncertainty. There's a. <laughs> I, I use that all the day, uh, all my days when no, I don't no, really no. know the No, no, no. So the cone is. of uncertainty refers to the path that the hurricane is going to take, and that that will still remain valid. So the national, we take the National Hurricane Center's forecast of where they think the storm is going to go, and we use that information to ingest into our model and basically build upon that. So we're dependent on the National Hurricane Center's information. But it's funny you should bring that up, Peter, because uh, particularly for Hurricane Ida, we ran multiple scenarios of what the hurricane would produce as far as, far as storm surge and wind. All, we did multiple tracks all within the cone of uncertainty. So center line of the cone, to the right of the cone, uh, 75%, and to the left of the cone, 75%. And it makes a huge difference in how much storm surge certain uh, communities see. Just absolutely incredible. So like for Hurricane Ida, shifted just slightly from the centerline track, and that's why Laplace got, got hit so bad. That wasn't forecasted, but it was, it was a 12-mile shift, but still within the cone of uncertainty, and it made a huge difference. 
I would like you to come and sit with my family on the sofa and watch these things. <laughs> sure, it would sure. really improve our conversation. Absolutely. So. We have a lot of visitors at our office. <laughs> uh, City of Slidell, we get the whole staff. We get the police chief. That's one of your chief. clients? Uh, City of Slidell is one of our clients. We have a contract with them. <laughs> uh, the mayor travels with us talking about how much he loves our product. The police chief, the fire chief, they're all standing room only <laughs> coming to stand around the monitor when there's a storm coming. So super helpful. Well, James, when I promote this this whole idea of wind energy what sometimes people say to me is there were so many jobs in oil and gas will this bring in a lot of jobs yeah i think uh, i get asked that question a lot as well and uh, in my opinion absolutely yes i mean this is coming back to the point this is just another energy producing asset and it's not designed to be in isolation so the beautiful thing about you know the focus on energy security that we've got in yep. the u.s today uh it's not just solar wind oil and gas it's a combination of everything you've also got tidal and hydro energy and all sorts of things um, but if we take it in three steps you've got the the capture or the generation of the power then you've got the big challenge that renewables has which is storage you know what do you do if you need the power and it's not windy what do you do if you're generating power and no one needs it and that comes you know so storage can be in the form of hydrogen um, you know, you can create, you know, hydrogen either as storage or actually to use and work with. There's a lot of pipeline, hydrogen pipeline already on the Gulf Coast. Um, there's a lot of gray hydrogen. There's all sorts of different colors of yeah, hydrogen. Blue, but, green, yeah, yeah that's right. But we're, you know, from green hydrogen to get real green hydrogen, it has to be from a, a renewable energy source. Um, and so once you've actually captured it, you've converted it, you need to then have the grid security. So there, it's almost part of a hybrid solution, maybe for Louisiana, which is not just investing in different sources of energy capture, it all generates jobs. Then going into grid infrastructure, you know, the likes of Entergy and some of these big power companies, that's more jobs. So you've got the direct jobs from the new assets, and you're talking about uh, over $100 billion of infrastructure investment, you know, before the end of the decade. Um, and then you've actually got the supporting and the service jobs. So if you've got 100 turbines out in a particular array, which is a 10 by 10 sort of square of lots of turbines, you have people essentially living at sea like they do with oil and gas. You're employing hundreds, thousands of people. Need to get the helicopters, the boats, them. the same it, it's kind of... It's all exactly the same workforce. Um, and that's even before you come into the manufacturing. Um, actually, Gulf Wind Technology, as you introduced me, is we're based at Avondale Shipyard. Avondale Shipyard used to employ over 26,000 people wow. back in the day, you know, making ships. Um, you look at the, con con you know, the parts of a turbine, they're very, very similar to a ship. You've got the what they call the jacket, which is the foundation. And there's some fantastic Louisiana companies. There's a company called Keystone Engineering that engineers these giant jackets. Um, you need to take plate metal, you need to convert it into tubes, weld it. That's hundreds, thousands of jobs. Then you've got the tower, and the tower might be, you know, to uh, say five, 600 feet tall. That's all fabricated, similar to fabricating a ship hull. So again, you've got another numerous, you know, hundreds, so you have the, thousands you have the of jobs. Force built from both the oil and gas industry and the shipping industry already here. Absolutely. You know, James, you know what's been interesting is what's happened with Russia and the Ukraine, because you know we kept hearing the term energy independence because we had as much oil and gas we needed, but it's a worldwide commodity, so here we are you know, paying an enormous amount at the pump. But this is different 
this is real energy independence. A absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, if you look at actually the the growth forecast for the amount of power demand, you know, you're looking at over 150 percent of more power needed, electricity needed in the U.S. over the next five years. So you you need to you know basically. Um, look after all of that demand. So you've got renewable energy, you've got something that is a constant. So once you've put a, a turbine in, once you put a field in, it's not actually affected by your global um, prices of oil, for example. So you've got a set power price agreement, you know you've basically got a renewable energy source, and you can start to change the paradigm about how we think about using energy in the city. If you've got unlimited energy, um, you'll basically limit less energy, then you can actually start to store it. You can start to look at the smart grid for the city of New Orleans. Right. You know, what happens in an outage? A hurricane comes through, what do you do? You can rely on your combination of fossil fuels of your um, from oil and gas. You've got your energy storage from hydrogen, I'm from so batteries. glad you two met, you by know? the way. Oh, this, this is um, going to be phenomenal. This, yeah. uh, this makes me very warm inside yes. that, uh, <laughs> that you've done this. Elizabeth, because it's a business show, I have to ask you, I mean, what you're doing is amazing, but what about the business side? Who are your customers, or who would they be? So, um, back to, as I mentioned before, uh, the predecessor company, World Winds Inc., that I founded in 2000, um, our, our main customers were the federal government. So, uh, we had a 10-year contract with FEMA uh, to produce new flood inundation maps. So we were able to buy a supercomputer, which is housed at our office in Slidell, and uh, for, for about 10 plus years, uh, we ran simulations for NFIP to develop uh, new maps along the whole Atlantic Basin from Texas to Maine uh, for everybody that lives. If you live within a 10 meter elevation, if uh, your property is within uh, 10 meters, of the Gulf, then you are required to have flood insurance. So uh, the other big client that we have is uh, television broadcasts. So uh, we had another big government contract by NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration in 2010, to take technology that was developed by them and turn it into products that would be useful to the public because it's your tax dollars that paid for it, right? And there was all this technology sitting around that these really smart uh, scientists had developed, but they, it wasn't being used. So we took a lot of that information, we pull a lot of satellite data down, and we turn it into products that are broadcast on television that are not, uh, not labeled, whirlwinds or Q-risk, so you don't really know where they came from, but you're benefiting from them. Now, with that said, uh, two years ago, we did introduce the Q-Risk Hurricane Storm Surge product to the television market through these same channels. And David Bernard from Fox 8 is one of our biggest fans. So I'm sure you've yeah, seen it on television. Sure. David loves, loves, loves yeah. it. Um, and Shelby Latino, um, back before she retired. Uh, and we, uh, for Hurricane Laura, that came through uh, Lafayette, uh, they were so pleased because, as we talked about earlier, Laura shifted um, less than 20 miles to the east of what the center track line was. It was still within the cone of uncertainty by the Hurricane Center. It still met all the requirements. But if it would have taken the center track, it would have absolutely wiped out uh, Lake Charles. Lake Charles. Yeah. 
as it stood, they still received a lot of damage, but that little shift to the east made a huge difference. Um, the highest storm surge we saw from Laura was 22 feet just to the east of that center track line. Just absolutely amazing. So anyway, back to the television broadcast, uh, they, they find the detailed information to be very, very useful to the local communities that people can identify. You know, we all know in our area, where's a low-lying area, where's a high-lying area. Like, for example, the city of Slidell. Like I said, they come to my office before every storm. Well, there are two particular neighborhoods in Slidell that are outside of the levee protection district. So those are the two they're concerned about. You know, is, is it gonna flood here or not? Inside the levee, they're not so concerned. But you can pinpoint down to the neighborhood and the house level who's gonna flood and who's not gonna flood. Now, can an individual uh, get your service? Yes, so just this year we are introducing the service to individuals for private property. They can go to our website, qrisk.com, qrisq.com, and register for the service. It would tell me about my house? Yes, so um, if there is a storm coming that will affect your house, it will give you a forecast every six hours of what you can expect. And then once the storm passes within 48 hours, it will tell you what your house actually experienced for wind and water so that if you need to pass that on to your insurance company, you will have it documented and in writing. All right, James. I'm so excited about what your company's doing, but you're here in New Orleans, you're not doing it by yourself. Where are you getting your help from? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, this city has been an absolute magnet for people that like to work together and like to solve problems and, and do industry first in, in wind energy. So I've been here for 12 years now. We've been working out at the NASA campus. We've worked with companies and universities from all over the Gulf states. But most importantly, at Avondale, we've got engagement from right from STEM program. So our engineers get involved at the school level, actually within the Jefferson Parish District. Um, we work with the colleges and universities, so Delgado and Nunes, UNO, Tulane University, LSU. These are all really active contributors to renewable energy and the problem statements that we need to solve together in the next few years. And I can tell by your accent, you were actually from the Marrero area. Yeah, There's a, where, I just put it on. Yeah, did you say, <laughs> where are you actually from? Yeah, I'm from a, a place called the Isle of Wight on the south coast of England, which is actually very similar to New Orleans. It's by that's the it, water. That's in a um, Beatles song from it, Sergeant Pepper, it, right? It absolutely is. Really? Yeah. yeah. I'm 64. Yeah. Wow. Yes, that's right. Yeah, wow. there you go. Isle of Wight if it's not too dear. Yeah, we yeah, go. That's yeah, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Elizabeth got to ask you, were you a weather kid? Um, I, I was not. No, really? She just got into this? Interesting. Uh... I, I was always a, a science kid, and um, I, I like to make a joke because I, I graduated from Dominican High School in 1983, and um, it was time to go to college, and I didn't know what I wanted to do, but my girlfriend Ann Bailey was going to LSU to be an engineer, and I said, okay, that sounds good. I'll do that, too. <laughs> so that's what I did. Um, that is career counseling. Yes, There's yes, there you go. <laughs> and, and I worked in uh, the Space Shuttle Main Engine program for five years, which was very interesting, but... Uh, then a new program developed at NASA called Commercial Remote Sensing, and it was, uh, as I mentioned before, taking government technology and turning it into a commercially viable product. And so I had a project with a man named Walt McCandless, who was an awesome guy who 
uh, was one of the engineers on one of the first radar satellites, RadarSat, that was built in the 60s. And he had retired from NASA, uh, started his own company, and he was the first one to introduce me to using wind technology out over the open ocean to forecast weather. And then we got into how that would affect hurricanes. And then when Walt decided to retire completely, he gave me the business, World Winds in 2000. That's, that's terrific. James, I was looking at the research and I noticed that the first two companies you work with in wind technology were bought out by GE. Um, is that how this ends? Yeah. Well, it's, uh, you've got to have the industrial horsepower of a big company. And why we were so happy to, we moved the com a company called Blade Dynamics from the UK over to New Orleans in 2010. We did many numerous pioneering projects taking innovation to product, which is one of the big challenges. And eventually you've got to get that into a commercial industrial application. So partnering up with GE and eventually getting acquired by GE was actually really positive. It got that technology out to the industry. So it got that kind of, you know, serial manufacturer, you know, you level up, you reduce the cost of energy from wind turbines. So with Gulf Wind Technology, our aim is to take uh, a pretty niche equation. So we want to solve technology challenges associated with the Gulf. We want to work with our customers to get more out of their asset. So we stop it turning off. We put technology on it to get more efficiency. We're optimizing the sales so you can win the race, basically, like the sailing well, event. If you look but, at GE's stock price, you can tell they made a lot of acquisitions that didn't work out, but yours did. Yeah, yes, I mean, they. yeah, GE is uh, in the power business, and I think the, the exciting thing about GE is that it uses gas turbines, it uses wind turbines, it uses its grid solutions, and it's gone all in with that. Uh, it's, a, it's a very powerful equation. And Elizabeth, I have to ask you the same question. You've been working with the federal government. You're, they're a client. I, I don't know if you know this, but the federal government has a printing press, and uh, they can make. <laughs> I don't usually share that with people, but would they just buy you? Um, probably not. Uh, so, as I mentioned before, you know, the the federal government has a, a really strong mission to pass the technology that was developed by them, by the taxpayer dollars, to the private sector to grow the private sector. So they look at us as a big success um, in that mission. So we, um, WorldWinds has had two SBIR pro projects, that stands for Small Business Innovative Research, and those are congressionally funded projects, not through any government agency, but through Congress itself that sends out this money for small private businesses to grow based on new technology developed. So it's a big mission of the federal government to grow small, high technology businesses. So they would rather promote and create new small businesses than uh, owning it themselves. Yes, absolutely, and because the small businesses are more efficient than the federal government as well. So they're How actually is, saving money by purchasing the, yeah. <laughs> from the small business. I'm sure you've heard the expression, it's an ill wind that blows nobody any good. It's meant to suggest that even something that's bad for most people has got to be good for somebody. There are very few instances where you can employ that expression literally. So to that extent, we may have made history here today. Elizabeth, your Q-Risk technology might be the closest we've come to getting an advantage over hurricanes, or at least being able to predict our chances of survival, and increasing our chances of getting an insurance settlement on the other side. 
and James, trying to catch the wind, was once a poetic way of describing a hopeless cause. Today, catching the wind is becoming a potentially planet-saving industry, and your turbine blade technology is the cutting edge of the revolution. Elizabeth and James, you're both doing groundbreaking work that would be significant in whatever city you are in, anywhere in the world. It's amazing that you're both here in New Orleans. It's been a pleasure to meet you, and I look forward to following your continued success. Thank you both for taking the time to join me today on Out to Lunch. Thank you so thank much you, for having us. Yeah, thank you. My guests on Out to Lunch today have been Elizabeth Valenti, President and CEO of World Winds Incorporated and Lead Engineer at Q-Risk Analytics, and James Martin, CEO of Gulf Wind Technology. We edited this show to fit into the time slot here on WWNO. You can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about Elizabeth and James' wind-driven worlds by listening to the Out to Lunch podcast. You can find and subscribe to the Out to Lunch podcast on your podcast app and on our website, It's New Orleans. If you want to know what we all look like, you can find photos from this show on itsneworleans.com and on our Out to Lunch social media. These photos were taken today by Jill LaFleur. You can find more of Jill's photos at lafleurphoto.com. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com and WWNO 89.9 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris, our technical producer is Eric Merle, and our researcher is Maggie Mendel. I'm Peter Raschuti. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the lunch table for more business, New Orleans style, on Out to Lunch. Out to Lunch was recorded live over lunch at the NOLA Brewing Tap Room, 3001 Chapatula Street, open seven days a week. NOLA Brewing Tap Room has a wide variety of craft beers and authentic hand-tossed New Major York style for Out to Lunch is NOLA provided pizza. by the more information is at NOLA Brewing. Established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Three Roll Estate Craft Rum Distillery, crafting premium rum from their own Louisiana sugar cane. Three Roll is cane to glass. And by Basics Swimming Gym and Basics Underneath Fine Lingerie. And by the It's New Orleans Happy Hour podcast. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com.